we look around at this world in which we live, and last weekend we were dealing with the shock of two shootings in two days, two mass shootings in two days across our nation. And of course, that's not the only thing that we deal with on a daily basis when we look at our culture, our society, our nation, and we see just the recognition, the realization that we live in a, in a broken and hurting world. We see difficulties all around. We see a society that is fleeing the authority of God, that is rejecting His presence and the authority of His Word, and, and it grieves us. I mean, as believers, as followers of Christ, we're, we're grieved by the things that we see, but we don't always deal with it the way God would have us deal with it. As Jesus has been sharing to in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, as we've been working our way verse by verse through this text of Scripture, He's dealing with a society and with a, with a culture that's really not entirely different from the things that we deal with today. I mean, if you think about it, the, the government of Jesus' day was the Roman Empire. It was a government that was godless, if you would. In fact, the leader of the, the government, the, the emperor, would have declared himself to be God and declared worship to be pledged towards him. And, of course, there was also a multiplicity of other gods that were worshipped, but nothing resembling the worship of the one true God was prevalent in the area except for this remnant of Jewish people that were there, but even amongst their own faith, their own religion, their practice of worshiping God had been reduced by their leaders to a list of do's and don'ts, to a, to a, and had been given the authority by those leaders to basically sit in judgment on everybody else and to reinterpret God's word to fit their own agenda and to declare themselves righteous. A lot of those same things happen today as people look at Scripture and they either try to reinterpret it according to their own preferences or they reject it altogether. We see people that are rejecting the, the notion of God or they've invented a God to their own liking. We see people that look at the Word of God and they they think that there may be something there or there are parts of it that they like and that they'll embrace and that they'll believe, but there are other parts that they're going to reject without recognizing that if we're going to say that this is God's Word and I believe what it says, that we can't pick and choose. It is either God's Word or it is not. And, these, and so Jesus is dealing with these same kind of things. And as we've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is dealing with the people that have been, they've been listening to the proclamation of God's Word, but they've been hearing it interpreted in an applied a way that was inconsistent with the way that God intended for it to be understood and applied. And so Jesus confronts their wrong thinking, and He says, you have heard it said. And constantly with these six different applications that he's taking from the common teachings of the time, he's confronting the people with these realities. You have heard it said, these things, but I'm telling you that what has been taught and what you have heard is not consistent with the Word of God. He says, but I say to you, 
He's in, invoking his authority as the very Son of God to give the proper interpretation. He says, but I say to you, this is the way that you should understand it. And this is what we've been looking at for the last several weeks in Matthew chapter 5. And I want to ask you to turn there with me if you haven't already. Matthew chapter 5, we're going to be in verses 43 through 46 or 47 this morning as we continue to look at this confrontation between Jesus and the religious leaders, Jesus and the people that have now followed him and sought to understand what it is that, that he has to teach. They, they're intrigued by this man who's come out of Galilee and who speaks with authority and they want to understand who he is and what is it that he's proclaiming and, and how is it that he so boldly speaks up against the religious authorities and asserts this authority and application in God's word. And in these verses, there's this Jesus' teaching comes really to a culmination as regarding the law. He's told us that he has come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And then he's pointed out several things which the people have been taught, but which they have been taught wrongly. And the culmination of that teaching as he points out self-righteousness and, he's, and as he brings his audience and us as we've been studying this, the intention is to bring us to the end of ourselves that we recognize that we can't, by looking at God's law, justify ourselves. You know, people, sometimes when we're out witnessing, we'll talk to people and we'll ask them, well, what do you believe that it takes a person to go to heaven? And a lot of people say, well, you, know, you need to be a good person. Well, how good do you need to be? And if God judges you based on his standard of goodness, how will you measure up? Have you, have you, have you kept the Ten Commandments? Do you even know the Ten Commandments? But Jesus says, even those things which we, most of us know, don't commit murder. Jesus says, if you hold hatred in your heart, you've already, you're already guilty of murder. He says, he says, the commandment tells us not to commit adultery. He says, if you look after lust, if you look with somebody with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. He says, the issue isn't always the carrying out of the sin as much as it is the heart with which we harbor these, these feelings and these emotions in which, we, which lead us to sin. See, he's trying to get to our heart. He's trying to bring conviction on us to help us to understand our need for something greater than ourselves. And so, so Jesus has been confronting us with these realities at the same time as he's seeking to bring us to the end of ourselves so that we recognize we need something greater than ourselves. He's also establishing the actual standard of righteousness that God had intended so that we might know that in Him, how we might live to be pleasing in His sight. Not in order to earn salvation, understand, we can't earn salvation, we can't be good enough. But once we have that right relationship with God, He has called us to live holy in His presence. And so while these passages are certainly meant to bring us to the end of ourselves and, the, and to recognize our need for something greater than ourselves, which is Christ Jesus, who is the Savior of the world, and it is Him that we need, but we also, in Him, need to recognize that there is a standard of holiness which we should be pursuing. And so, in this culmination, in this section of teaching, Jesus is giving instruction regarding real love. What is real love? What does it look like? How do, we, how do we embrace it? How do we demonstrate it? And so this, 
direction begins in verse number 43. I want to ask you to stand with me this morning in reverence to the reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Heavenly Father, we come to your word this morning with a hunger for truth. And we ask, Lord, that by your spirit, that you would speak to us, that you would touch our hearts and teach us that we might be conformed to the likeness of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You should be seated. Now, we began to explore this passage last week. And as we, in this message that I've entitled, Real Love. But really, before we can understand what Jesus is talking about, when he talks about love, we have to understand what love is according to Scripture. Not according to what, how we define it or what we think of it, but how does Scripture define it? And of course, we talked a little bit of last week about how there's different words in the Greek that are all translated as love in the English, and there's four different words, and they carry different things, and we're not going to rehash all of that. But understand this, that the word love used in this context is from the Greek word agape, which is a God kind of love, which is that love which is uh, unconditional, sacrificial, and intentional. It is, it is love that comes from the heart of God. It is that love that has been extended to us through Jesus Christ, and it is that love that he has called us to express to others, and not just to the people we want to love, but even to those we don't want to love. He starts off by, by telling us, and we talked a little bit about this last week, he starts off by telling us, don't be deceived by your feelings. He says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemies. And that sounds really good. We can do that, right? I mean, that's pretty easy. We can love those that love us, and we can hate those that hate us, and we're perfectly content to do so. But Jesus is saying there's something wrong with this, because it's emotionally driven. It's not truth driven. And while it's easy, it's not right. And so we're not to be deceived by our feelings, but rather he gives us the direction to love. He says, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. These are the two primary commands in this, in this verse, and they really go hand in hand because the, we, while we are called to love, the means by which we love begins in prayer. Prayer motivates us, right? Prayer aligns our heart with God's heart. That's why we pray. We don't simply pray to try and get God to do things for us. We pray that we might submit our will to His and that our will might line up with His so that He might work through us to accomplish His purposes. That's how God answers prayer. When our line gets aligned, or when our will gets aligned with God's will, then God acts to answer our prayers and to give His name glory. 
And so he works through our prayers as we pray for those who are opposed to us. We pray for those who frustrate us and aggravate us and, and, and stand against us. We pray for those in order, first of all, prayer itself is an act of love. If we're praying for those people, that's a demonstration that we care, not just about what God's told us to do, but we care actually about them. So we begin to pray for them and our heart begins to be aligned with God's heart in order that we might demonstrate intentional love towards those people whom are opposed to us and to whom cause us grief and anxiety and frustration. So he gives us that direction to love. And as we get into verse 45, and this is where we're going to begin today, we get into verse 45, we see these two little words there, so that. This is a, it's an explanation of what the intention is. It, it shows a relationship between the things which have been said to what's about to be said. It's, it's, a, it's a purpose clause, if you will. Jesus is saying that you've heard this, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say love your enemy, pray for those who persecute you, so that, there's a reason behind it, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. He says, so that you can do this. This is the ultimate purpose which is driving this as he's calling us to demonstrate love. So we've seen the deception in feelings, we've seen the, the direction to love, and now Jesus moves on into this demonstration of love in order that we might demonstrate, not just love, but we might demonstrate that we are the children of God. When we look at this instruction here, he says, so that you may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven. Now this is the phrasing here, the sons, uh, the sons of God is something that was used previously earlier on in the chapter when Jesus was going through the Beatitudes and he says in verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Well, guess what? If you're loving your enemies, that's how you become a peacemaker, right? And so he's, it, there is a connection to what's already been said. Jesus builds on the things which have been shared previously, and he brings it back to this reality as he's called us to demonstrate love being the driving purpose to demonstrate that we belong to him. Now, you might read that, and you might think, well, it says, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven, or you could translate it, you may become sons of your father who is in heaven. You say, well, that seems to indicate that this is necessary in order for us to be saved. Well, we know very clearly from other scriptures that salvation is not of works, but it is of grace and faith, right? Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, you all, you all should know it. If you don't know it, you need to memorize it. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast, right? Salvation is by grace through faith. It's not of works. Very clear. I was witnessing to a, to a lady when we were in Missouri a few weeks ago, and uh, she, uh, she came out of a Catholic background, and, and, and I was talking to her, and, and I talked to her about what she thought about getting into heaven, and she says, well, you know, you got to be good, and you got to do this, and you got you to do that. And I, and I said, can I share a verse with you? And she said, yeah. And so I shared with her Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. And, and so I had my Bible open, and I read it to her, and I said, well, what do you think of that? And she says, well, it sounds like a free pass. Well, <laughs> you're starting to get it. It's, it. Because it's not of us. It's all of God. 
And so, and so we, have, we understand that. So what else, what else could Jesus mean here if he doesn't mean that by doing this we become sons of God? What he's saying is that we show ourselves to be the children of God through, by, by carrying out this direction to love. We demonstrate the reality of our salvation. And, and it does so because it demonstrates something that is supernatural in us. It's not hard to love those who love you and to hate those who hate you. That's the very natural thing to do. But to love your enemies, to be intentional about showing kindness, to be intentional about praying for them, that shows something supernatural at work. It shows a demonstration of the reality of the Spirit of God at work in your life. And so that is the purpose for which we are called to love our enemies. Because who naturally loves their enemies? No one. No one does. But when we come to Christ, we are given a new heart. We are given a new purpose. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things pass away. Behold, all things are new. Our nature is displayed through obedience to Christ's direction. That we would demonstrate love to others whether or not they deserve it. Did we deserve the love that Christ showed for us on the cross? No. Of course not. But He showed it anyway. He gave Himself for us and He has asked us to do the same thing, to demonstrate love. And He offers us in the following, in the rest of verse 45 and verses 46 and 47, three illustrations that demonstrate that that show us the reasons we are to demonstrate love. He goes on in verse 45. He says, for, that is a, a word you understand there that's giving an explanation, right? It's, it's a because, right? He says, for he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So the idea here is that we, we, we show love that we can be shown to be children of God because He Himself demonstrates grace to all people. There is a, a revealing of God's common grace. And because of God's grace, and because we are His children, we have to show an impartial grace towards others. Okay? So, the example, I mean, think about this. What, what, when you think about the sun rising on the evil and the good, and the rain coming on the righteous and the unrighteous, what are the sun and rain? These are the things which, which help maintain life, right? They make life possible. We need the sunshine, we need the rain. Rain helps things to grow, the sun helps things to grow, it helps to provide oxygen for us, helps to provide food for us, right? It's all part of the cycle. These are the essential elements of which God is in complete control, which helps to sustain life on earth. And God does that for everyone, right? The common grace to all men. Although God's Word says that we deserve death, right? The Bible says the wages of sin is death. When we, because we have offended God, we don't deserve to live, and yet God 
gives and sustains life for us. And he gives us in that life, he gives us the opportunity to come to know him. And, and so that common grace of God is extended to all people because there is, as Romans 2.11 tells us, there is no partiality with God. He doesn't show favoritism. He doesn't, he doesn't care about our social status. He doesn't care about our economic success. He doesn't care how politically savvy we are, how politically powerful we might be. He doesn't care what ethnicity we derive from or anything else. All of those things which we tend to put people in groups about and to separate and to make distinctions and to form prejudices and not in the sense of necessarily being a, a negative or opposed to somebody, but just because we group them, we have a mindset of, well, these people are this way because they belong to this group, and these people are this way because they belong to this group. But God doesn't do that. God shows that common grace to every person. God provides life. And so he says, because of that, we are also to demonstrate that grace by loving our enemies. We previously noted from Romans 12, 19 that we're instructed ne to never take our own revenge. He says, leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. When people offend us and hurt us and, and are opposed to us, then we can trust that God's going to take care of it. We, we, don't, we don't have to assert our authority and, and our way and our intention to get back at them. We can just, we can leave it in God's hands. And we can, and we can instead focus on loving them in the same way that while we were enemies of God, He loved us and sent His Son to die for us. That's a demonstration of real Christian love. And we demonstrate that because of God's common grace. But we also do it because of God's saving grace. Look on to verse number 46. He says, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. Now, I want you to understand, verses 46 and 47, they're, they're parallel statements. They're very similar, and they really point to one primary truth. But there's some slight differences in the wording that help us to understand that there's a slightly different application between two of them that I want to share with you this morning. But let's first look at the overall truth in these two parallel um, passages. First, you know, we see, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? The, the primary purpose is for us to recognize that the people that we consider as outcasts, deviants, or otherwise offensive to us, when we look at those groupings those, that we put people into, that we recognize within those groups that those people tend to care for one another and watch out for one another, even as we tend to care for the people that are in our groups and, and surrounding us. And, and while most people... Um, don't like to, to think about it, and, and we're in a society which, you know, tells us, you know, all, you know, to be all-inclusive and, and all of this. The reality is, is when we look at society, we just, we have a natural tendency to group people in different scenarios, in different groupings of people. Um, think, think about it this way, just thinking of a specific group of people. Think about street gangs, okay? There's a very specific type of people that represent what 
those people that are in street gangs, right? And this is a group of people that typically operates outside the law. They're typically involved in illegal activity. They typically prey on weak people. They typically take advantage of those people who are who they feel are easy targets, and they draw strength from from their group, right? And they they pretty much they carry out the things that they want that they want to do, and that they feel um, are right and good according to them. Okay. Now most people don't just want and dream of being come part being come a part of a street gang. It's just not. It's not what we typically think of. We typically recognize that there's something negative about this group. But yet, within the group, within the group, regardless of what they may have, it may have taken them to get into the group, once they're in the group, there's a certain amount of care that they show for one another. There's a certain amount of loyalty that they demonstrate towards one another. And in a lot of ways, they function as a family as they watch out for one another and care for one another and those things. Now, this is not all that different when you think about contextually, what Jesus was dealing with is he points his finger at this group of people that was, that was looked down upon by the Jewish population he was addressing as he's looking at these people that he calls the tax collectors. Well, who are, who are these people to Jesus or to Jesus' audience? The tax collectors were those Jewish people who were serving the hated Roman government, who were considered to be traitors, who were considered to be dishonest, and who were taking advantage of their countrymen in the, in the work that they'd been given to do. They were despised by the larger Jewish population. But yet Jesus says, look at those people who you despise. Look at those people who you think are so much less than you are. And look at how they care for one another. And look at how they watch out for one another. And look at how they, they do these things to encourage one another. And he says, Essentially, are you not the children of God and are called to do more than what they do? It's no big deal for us to be just like them, but it is a big deal if we can be better than they are. If we can demonstrate a love which supersedes and which far exceeds what they do. And he asks this question, he says, if, if you only love those who love you, what reward do you have? Right? What is it that we're looking for? When we love our enemies, we're not doing it for an earthly recognition. But we're doing it because of a heavenly reward that's been promised to us already. That's why I say it because of God's grace of salvation. Because we have been saved, we are called to a higher plane of love. We are called to a higher exercise of demonstrating care and concern for those people around us. Love, to love those that oppose you, to love those that persecute you, use you, and hurt you, that demonstrates that we're not looking for a return here on earth, but we're looking for that which has been promised to us in eternity. And so we're to love because of our salvation, but we're also to love because of the gospel. Verse 47, if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? 
Now, if you're reading from the King James, there's no, it doesn't read Gentiles there. It reads the same as in the previous version, it reads tax collectors or publicans. Um, and however, the word Gentiles, it, 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 this, the New American Standard, which I'm preaching from, comes from a, an older manuscript, if you will, closer to the originals than what the King James does. And so, and it gives us this, this word Gentiles in place of publicans there which actually makes Jesus' argument even stronger. Because while the publicans, by the, the tax collectors, those were people that, that the Jews thought of as, as, you know, like I said, they're traitors and they're dishonest and they, didn't, they really didn't like them, but they were still Jews. But the Gentiles, these weren't just the enemies of Jews, but the Jews saw them as the enemies of God. I mean, you think about how God pulled... The, the chosen Israel out of all the nations of the earth to be his representatives and, and how he had blessed them and dwelt with them and he had, he had used them in, in a mighty way and he had used them even as instruments of justice against some of these other nations. And, and to the Jewish mind, the, the Gentiles were, were completely reprehensible, even more so than those tax collectors who were just traitors. And so, the, the, and the point, excuse me, and the point, so the point becomes stronger as Jesus points to this group who is even more hated and more, uh, more despised by the people that he's talking to. But it makes the point also, not just in revealing the extent of the love to be to the most vile of those who would oppose us and who we don't like. But it also helps us to understand that the reason why we're to love in this way and to love beyond the way that these people love is for the sake of the gospel. You see, Israel was set apart for the sake of representing the one true God to the world so that the nations would come and worship him. That was why Israel was set apart. They were set apart for the sake of the gospel, for the good news of salvation. And the Jews, they, they saw their position before God as one of privilege above other nations, but they had failed to see God's heart for all people to worship Him. Now, ultimately, redemption was accomplished through the Jewish people, through Israel, as the seed came through their line into the world who was Christ, who was the Redeemer, revealing to us the good news that God saves sinners, that He restores relationships, that He encourages and strengthens. But the Jews failed to see God's heart for the nations. And yet, when we look back to the Old Testament, there's no shortage of passages that we could turn to. Psalm twenty-two, twenty-seven says, All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will worship before you. Psalm 86, 9 says, All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and they shall glorify your name. Isaiah chapter 66, verse 23 says, And it shall be from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath all mankind will come to bow down before me, says the Lord. Isaiah 49, 6 
He says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And those are some, just some very specific passages that reveal God's heart for the nations to come to salvation. But we see it in the larger scope of Scripture as well. If we, if we think of the genealogy of Christ and who was involved in, in that line in preserving the promised seed, right? From the seed that was the seed of woman that was promised to Adam and Eve to the seed that was promised to Abraham, the preservation of the seed throughout the generations, who was involved? Remember, there was a, there was a woman by the name of, of uh, Bathsheba, right? Bathsheba was married to who? Uriah the Hittite, right? Well, the Hittites were not Jewish of Jewish descent. Bathsheba was likely the same nationality as her husband, but who ended up being married to David and who, through whom Solomon was born, through whom Christ would ultimately come. Go a little bit later in history and you have someone, a famous lady by the name of Ruth, right? Ruth was of the tribe of Moab. Moab was hated by Israel. God had cursed Moab because of their refusal to help Israel when they were coming through the wilderness. And yet, God takes this woman, Ruth, who is of the country of Moab, but who forsakes her country and comes and takes refuge in the God of Israel. And she marries Boaz, through whom, a couple generations later, David comes, through then Solomon, which we already mentioned, and on till Christ. See, God wasn't just intending to at one point bring the nations to himself. But all along he intended for salvation to be unto the nations through the proclamation of his people. At the time Jesus is preaching, his people were the Jews. Today, we are his people. We who were not a people are now called His people because of the abundant grace of God which has been poured out to us in order that we might be forgiven, that we might be transformed, and that we might represent Him to the world so that they might know of His great love and forgiveness. And so we're called to demonstrate love to our enemies for the sake of the gospel because He loved us when we were unlovable. And because he loved us when we were his enemies. And he sent his son into the world to stand in our place and to endure the judgment that we deserved. And through his name, the name of Jesus Christ, we are cleansed of our sin. We are forgiven and we are born again into the family of God. Not because he had to do it but because he chose to, because of his great love. Christ became our substitute and gave us our righteousness, gave us his righteousness in order that we might be acceptable to the Father. And he has promised to do the same for all who will call upon him in faith. That's what he's done for us, and he has called us to do the same, to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us. But we have to understand something. It begins 
hear. A lot of times we come to a passage like this and we, we focus on the nations and we, and we focus our attention on this call to love, and, but where it really gets real is to recognize that the love that we're to demonstrate, it takes place in real relationships. It takes place amongst real people, the people that we come in contact with on a regular basis, the people that, that we maybe at one time called our neighbor, but who have offended or frustrated or upset us and who we don't really care to show them love. And yet, what did Jesus tell us in John chapter 13? By all this, people will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. You see, it begins with the church. You know why the church has lost so much authority and so much of its testimony in the world? Because people don't see this kind of love being exemplified through the church. They don't, they, they don't see it. They, they, see, they see hurt and they see frustration and they see, they see aggravation. And they see, basically they see, in a lot of cases, they see the church acting like the world. And they say, I don't. I don't need that. I have that already. It's got to start with us, and it has to start here. We have to learn to express the love of Christ unconditionally, sacrificially, and intentionally, whether or not we receive love in return, and regardless of how we feel. Because it's not about our feelings. It's about obedience. It's about honoring God. It's about demonstrating the love of Christ. Do you realize how powerful a tool the love of Christ is? It's the most powerful tool that we have available to us to accomplish all that God's called us to do. God has called us as a people to, to glorify God by exalting the name of Jesus Christ. How is Christ more exalted than when, when His love is demonstrated through His people? Christ is exalted. He has called us to glorify God by empowering His church through encouragement and equipping and edification. What better tool to accomplish those things than to love one another and for that love to extend beyond the walls of the church and to demonstrate the the work of God among His people. And as it goes out beyond the church, we see how love helps us to engage the culture. As it extinguishes our pride and helps us to demonstrate the very character of Christ. Our gospel witness has no power apart from the demonstration of love. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the Apostle Paul expounds on the nature of Christian love. We most often use this passage in, in wedding ceremonies and, and, and those kinds of things, and there's certainly an application there, but contextually Paul was speaking about the church, and I want to just share with you in closing that passage from 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 8. Listen to what Scripture says. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, 
I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned and do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and it is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It does not keep a record of wrong. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Love is not just a feeling that motivates us to want to do good to somebody else. Is it that at times? Sure it is, but not the way we're dealing with it this morning. Not the way Scripture speaks of it. Love is an action that demonstrates commitment to the good of another even when we don't feel like it. That's real love. That's the love that Jesus Christ has shown for us and that He has called us to show to others. So what about your life? What about those that the Lord is causing you to think of as we speak of this this morning? What about those that have frustrated you and aggravated you? How have you acted towards them? And how is God calling you to respond today? see, anything short of love is disobedience to God. And it's a barrier to the gospel of Jesus Christ. God doesn't call us to do what's easy. If it was easy, where would the glory for Him be in? But He calls us to do that which only He can do through us so that He receives the glory. Let's pray together. Father, I rejoice in the love which you have shown to us. And I thank you, Lord, for the challenge that you have laid before us this morning. Lord, it's hard. And I can feel the weight of it bearing down on me even as it bears down on the congregation today. But Lord, we know that you're not a God that seeks to oppress us, but to set us free. So, Father, lead us to a place of submission and surrender, that we might know the freedom that comes from trusting you and obeying you. And, Father, help us, Lord, to express the same love with which you loved us to those who have offended us and those who have wronged us and those to whom we struggle to love. Father, give us greater love for them. And help us, Lord, in all things to do what brings honor and glory to your great and holy name. Father, I pray that you would continue to convict our hearts and to lead us to that place of surrender, that place of freedom, that place of hope. And strengthen us carry out your will. 
that you would continue, continue to be glorified through us. Father, if there's anyone here this morning that has never known that love which I've been speaking about this morning, if they've never experienced that forgiveness, Lord, help them to know that you are ready to receive them. Help them to know that there is grace and forgiveness for all who call upon the name of Christ Jesus. And for us who have been walking with you, Father, but have not loved as we ought to, deal with our hearts and lead us to repentance that we might grow in faith and in usefulness and that the power of the gospel might be manifest through us to the expansion of your kingdom and to the glory of God. It's in Jesus' name we pray.